Titus 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, Let no one disregard you. Well, let me pray for us as we start. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much that we are able to read this morning your word in our language. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made yourself clear to us in the Bible through your truths, through good doctrine that is helpful for our lives now and helpful for our preparation for eternity. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us as we come to your word. May we be convicted and may we be encouraged, we pray, on the gospel of your grace. May we stand on that as we leave here, changed for your glory. In your mighty name, amen. Well, um, last week we started looking at this small pastoral letter written by the Apostle Paul to his close companion, Titus. And if you remember, after a successful mission trip to Crete. Titus is left behind on that island to establish the new church that has sprung up there. And this letter, written by Paul from Greece, where he has since returned, is an instruction manual as to how Titus is to build and establish this church. And if you remember, the main line of the letter is very simply that upon the essential foundation of the apostolic gospel, which we looked at in verses 1 to 4, Titus is to chapter 1, choose and build up godly church leaders so that chapter 2, they can live out and teach the true gospel to the whole church in order that they may live lives of radical godliness so that chapter 3, verse 1, they can be ready for every good work. Or more succinctly, find godly church leaders that build godly churches that adorn and proclaim the gospel. And whereas last week we spent our time looking at that gospel and looking at Titus's having to choose gospel leaders, well, today we head into chapter 2 where we see what it is that Titus, and by extension, what his leaders and his elders are to do. And we see that in verse 1. Quite simply, they are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And who is to receive this teaching? Well, it is to be the rest of the church, from the old man to the young girl. Each individual member is to be taught the sound truths of the essential gospel which will inspire them to godliness. But before we look at how these individuals in the church are to be taught, there's an important point here to be made about sound doctrine. 
And for those of us here who are perhaps not Christians, well, first of all, may I welcome you this morning. It's great to have you here. Thank you for coming and listening. But, but to you especially, perhaps, I wonder what you think when we come to the word doctrine. It can have some very arrogant overtones, can't it? It kind of brings up the negative connotations of indoctrination. I remember when I was working with UCCF, we did a series of um, evangelism training seminars for church-based student workers at our summer national conference, and we were talking about doctrine and the truths of scripture on which we all stand, and, and one older guy stood up in this discussion and said quite earnestly, well, this is all well and good, but doctrine isn't something we should be focusing on, because as we all know, he said, doctrine divides. Surely we should just be loving people where they are. We, we shouldn't be conforming them to the Bible's viewpoint. And maybe that's what you think about the Bible this morning. As a non-Christian, maybe you said to yourself, yeah, why should it be that I should listen to what the Bible says? It feels very dogmatic. Or maybe you're a Christian here this morning, and you feel perhaps the same. Or you feel, yeah, I'm not sure I have the right to tell people what the Bible says. It feels quite arrogant. Well, remember what we said last week about Titus 1, 1 to 4. The essential foundation of Christianity, that is the gospel, something that is to be given to the whole world. It is not just from anyone. It is from God. That means it's not man's opinion. And this gospel has been handed down from God very carefully through time by godly men. And that's because this gospel is not any normal kind of information. It is the truth that transforms lives. And not just for earth, but for eternity. And if that is true about the gospel, and it is, then what we as God's church must be doing is teaching the profound truths found in the gospel. And we must be living out this doctrine in the gospel, no matter how countercultural it feels. Otherwise, the gospel we live and preach will be ineffective and people won't be changed. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I wondered if you've ever viewed the gospel or the Bible in those terms. I challenge you to look at what the Bible actually says, what it says about Jesus. Read it for yourself. If you're interested in wanting to read the Bible, please speak to me at the end. I'd love to. It's important. But for all of us here this morning, especially those of us who are Christians... As we hit Titus 2, remember that we are not preaching a list of rules a group of humans thought might be a good idea to live by. We teach and live out the gospel of God, who created us and knows exactly what is best for us. And so, preaching and living out the sound doctrines of the gospel, as detailed here in how we should live, is a good thing. You see, that student worker was wrong. Simply loving people and not teaching sound doctrine isn't loving people. It is presenting a false gospel that will not transform them. It will only make people content in their lostness. If we really love people, then we must be preaching and living out the gospel as it has been taught, Titus 1 verse 9. And we do so lovingly, gently, without shame, and with real grace. And so, with the wonderful underpinning of gospel truth, with all that in our minds, what is it, this sound doctrine that must be taught to these different groups in the church so that they look like followers of Jesus? In short, how should we in Chalmers be, verse 10 of this chapter, adorning the doctrine of God? 
Well, first, Paul tells Titus and his leaders, with sound doctrine, you are to teach first the older men. Verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, I wouldn't dream of assuming who of you should be listening to these bits that talk about older men and older women. I am not going to put an age bracket on it, and I am not looking at anyone. But as we go through these age groups in the church, you know who you are. To you older men, therefore, whoever you are in this room, you are to be sober-minded and dignified. That is, you are to be, as the NIV has it, temperate. You are to show yourselves to be sensible and reliable, people who deploy wisdom and who act appropriately. There is an increasing view, I think, um, in the UK and in Western society in general, that old age is perhaps something of an embarrassment, Or at best, maybe a problem to be solved, even if we would never say it in those terms. Shown maybe by the amount of money we spend on desperately trying to be and look and feel young, to to fend off old age as long as possible. But I think we also live in an age where value is attached to usefulness. The idea that if you're too old to contribute to society, then maybe you're just too old. And we can sense that from the kind of political age we live in. We live in the age of assisted dying bills, of rampant loneliness in the older generation, of the young abandoning their older parents. We live in the age of old people being increasingly scammed and maligned and removed from public positions. Well, the Bible's view is very different. It is that old people should be deeply respected. The very name for church leaders in this letter is elder, literally older man. There is an understanding here that the best of society, the leaders of our church, are to come from the older male generation. But with that recognition, older men comes an incredible responsibility. You are to act in a manner that is worthy of that respect. In fact, that's what the word dignified means here, to be worthy of respect. It makes sense then that you must be, as leaders and elders and people to whom the younger generation look up to, an example an example of sober-mindedness and of godliness. You are then to be self-controlled. That is, all the things you struggled with as young men, well, they don't necessarily go away in your old age. Whether it be sexual desires or old bad habits or recurring sins that you've never really dealt with. Don't assume, in other words, that as an older man that you've made it yet. Paul continues to say that you are to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness or endurance. In other words, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep battling. You've got to keep on top of your sin. You've got to keep living lives of godliness and repentance every day. And I mean this sincerely and with all respect. You need to live even more like this as you see the end of your life approaching. As Paul says in Ephesians, you are running a race. And you're not done yet. You cannot rest on your laurels thinking you're going to sail to the finish line. It really will not be like that. Likewise with mission. You can't stand on the excuse that you've done your time in the church and it's time to sit back and let younger people do it. Don't be like that. As John Piper says, in the gospel, no one retires. In your retirement, how are you using up all that time well for the gospel? Is it just long holidays, which are wonderful things that are well-deserved and are good for you, but is that all you're doing? 
Or are you dedicated to church life and reaching people for the gospel? In short, you older men need to finish well. And we who are young, I as a young man, need to see you finishing well. We need to see and hear how you have dealt with errors of sin in the past, how you have come back to God. We need to hear your warnings. We need to hear your counsel. We need to hear your wisdom. We, you need to show me how to live in the gospel. And I need to be following your example. You older men have a truly important role in the life of the church. And as such, you are to be on constant display for the gospel. And that is why Paul starts this list with you. Wisdom and godly living is meant to be examples from the top down, and we are all meant to follow in your footsteps. You are to be exemplars of gospel truth. Are you? Do you take that role seriously? In fact, have you even considered that this is how you're meant to be living? Are you living every day knowing that you are to be an example to the entire church for the gospel? But moving on, we see what Paul says next to be taught to older women, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. The word likewise is important here. You too, older women, whoever you feel you are in this room, are to act according to the respect given to you as an older member of the church community. You too are to be godly people of wisdom and experience that the younger generation, specifically here, the younger women, are meant to look up to. This means you are to be reverent in your behavior. Now, reverent or reverence is is, is a wonderful word. It means to show deep, beautiful respect, specifically here for Jesus, or better put, to be in close company with Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful idea? The idea that you are spending time with the Lord so much that it visibly shows. Thinking of this passage brought me back to my time in Highfields Church in Cardiff, um, where I was a student on a map, and, uh, and I remember a particular evening where we had one of our members, um, a, a, a titan of a missionary called Helen Rosevear. Many of you will have known her and heard of her. She only died seven months ago. I remember her coming and speaking to us about her time in the Congo. And as she detailed these incredible stories of her mission life as this minuscule old woman stood in front of our enormous church building, dwarfed by the lectern and the stage behind her, she she, she told us these stories bouncing on the balls of her feet with excitement, her her eyes alive with the gospel. She was spiritually bright. She looked like she was just an excitable little girl who was talking about her dad. And behind her face hid a lifetime of pain and suffering and incredible loss for the gospel that we could only begin to imagine. And as she was talking, one of my colleagues turned to me and whispered in my ear, and he said, I think she might be the only person I've ever met who looks like they have visibly seen Jesus with her own eyes. I have never been more enraptured by Jesus before that moment than when I was sitting looking at this old woman who loved and revered her saviour so much. It was commented that Helen Rosevear was someone of whom the world was not worthy, and that is absolutely true. But as much as she is a high example, I've known many more women who are not Helen Rosevears, but who were exactly like her. Some of the people who have prayed most for me and Jen and for our life and our godliness and our ministry have been older women in the church. Most of my most precious moments in prayer with other people have been in houses with older women in the church. 
Women who shine and radiate Christ. Women whose faces literally sparkle with Jesus. It is so deeply attractive. Most of the people I still handwrite letters to are older women who have prayed for me every day as a student, every day as a map, every day as a married man. Many of these women nestled in the Welsh valleys on their own, in the middle of nowhere, fighting behind closed doors, a colossal spiritual battle for the kingdom of God from their armchairs and their front rooms. Older women, be like them. Live with that visible attractiveness of having been meeting with Jesus. Live prayerfully in your older age, seeking to battle, perhaps like the older men, laziness in gospel progress. Again, we so desperately need you. We need to see evidence of your gospel longevity. This is why not being slanderers is detailed here. The other way to translate this is not being a gossip. In your day, don't give yourselves over to talking about people, but rather talk about Jesus. Talk favorably of people. Talk to Jesus. Pray for them. Indeed, as you have a reverence for Christ, there won't be space for this. That's the the point that Paul is making. And what on earth do we do with not being slaves to much wine? Um, This isn't my experience of older women, just so that you know. Don't forget that Paul is talking into very specific situations here. We've already seen what the Cretans themselves think of their own people. Chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It seems to be a debauched society, and it seems then that among the older female community, perhaps as as they gather together during the day, there there is a serious problem of, of whiling away the day with alcohol and godless chatter. Paul's point is this. Teach the older women not to be wrapped up in their culture with each other, but teach them to be wrapped up in reverence for Christ. As an older woman here this morning, are you doing that? Are you like a Mary who sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to his voice? Are you living lives of good speech, being attractive, full of self-control and godly reverence? And are you properly training and teaching the young women to do the same? And that's where Paul turns to next. Verse 4 and 5. The older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, as we come to this part in Titus 2, I'm very aware that there are bits in here that make us squirm, principally because they come up against our 21st century sensitivities, especially in regards to what is being said here concerning young women and submissiveness and working in the home, very incendiary phrases in our day and age. And dealing with this well is important, First of all, it is not a bad thing to say that men and women are very different creatures. It is just true that there are things I cannot do that my wife Jen can do, and vice versa. It then makes sense that there are different things and different areas of sin that men and women struggle with differently and in different ways, as we've just seen with older men and and older women. And that's because the Bible tells us there are two very different kinds of creatures, In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that we are made as humans to exist as male and female. The Bible affirms this. It's a glorious truth that separate gender is to be celebrated. In Genesis 2, we see two different people made specifically for each other as perfect opposites, and both with different roles. The man as leader, his wife as helper. And as we see that in Genesis, we see that distinction played out in creation, 
We also see in Genesis and in the rest of the Bible that both male and female, despite having very different roles, are entirely equal under salvation. So men and women are equal, but they are different. And so it makes sense that it is in the family, as male and female come together in marriage as man and wife, that these roles are going to be played out and they're going to be exemplified. Young women, then, in their role as a wife specifically here, are to love their husbands and their children. This is normal godly living. And of course this doesn't mean that men aren't to do this as well. They are to love their wives. In fact, at Ephesians 5.25, a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He is to love his wife with a sacrificial love to the loss of his own life. And this helps with the word submit. Wife, in her role as a helper, is to submit to her husband in his role as sacrificial leader. That does not mean she doesn't make decisions or discuss serious things of concern with her husband. Of course she does. She's his helper. He can't do it on his own. It certainly doesn't mean that the man's always right. But there is the understanding that the man in his role under creation and his responsibility under the Lord is to lead his family well, sacrificially, making the final call after godly discussion with his wife helping him and affirming him in that role. Young women, are you loving your husbands, those of you who are married? Practically and emotionally, do you care for him as he cares for you? Do you love your children? As we know, loving children doesn't mean idolizing them or not disciplining them. That isn't loving them. Are you teaching them the truths of the gospel? Are you exampling to your children when at home around them what the older women example to you? That is to have deep respect for the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you loving and discipling them in the Lord? Likewise, then, it should be that being at home or working for the family at home should be something to be aimed for and not embarrassed by. And I think it is something that we're embarrassed by in our society today. Now, this passage is not a blanket ban on women working. It really isn't. In fact, in Proverbs 31, we read of this remarkable woman who is both an excellent mother and a brilliant businesswoman. My wife works. Jen works in Glasgow full-time, and I'm here in the church studying and working full-time. Hopefully, we pray in time she won't have to work. Many of you younger women with families will be working, and that's great. This passage does not legislate against that at all. But the question is, what is your priority Is it your career or is it your family? If you had to, would you give up work tomorrow to protect your family life and the love of your children and of your husband? Husbands, would you, as per Ephesians 5, not just give up your careers, but your lives for the woman you married? Giving to your wife to the point of social, personal, and physical loss, would you really do that? The exhortation to both men and women in marriage is very high. And it is a wonderful thing to attain. As the family home and the family unit is under godly men and women protected and strengthened as it becomes a microcosm of the gospel. But it's not just married women Paul speaks to. There are qualities here that all women should deploy. Young women should be self-controlled, pure and kind. Again, I think there is a perception in media and film and in the music industry, most certainly, that a woman is to act in a certain type of way or look a certain type of way 
where a woman is to be forceful or ruthlessly advantageous, and certainly where purity specifically is shunned and laughed at. The Bible's presentation of womanhood is the complete opposite of all this. It's to be pure and kind and self-controlled. Again, the way a young woman conducts herself in these areas, like the older women living in close community with Jesus, is astonishingly attractive, especially in our day and age. I remember having a conversation again with a student in Edinburgh several years ago who'd wonderfully become a Christian and who is now working for a church. And I remember asking him one day what first attracted him to the gospel. And he said with an embarrassed look on his face that he had noticed just how attractive the Christian girls were. Because they were so different to all the other girls. And then he said to me very seriously that they portrayed a dignity that stood out against the culture around them. And as such, and these are his words, he said, I then found I was increasingly attracted less by them and more by the reason they were like that. I found I was increasingly attracted to the gospel. A woman of self-control, kindness, purity, it's not just a wonderful way to live in community and in safety under God. But as is the focus of the whole of this letter, she profoundly adorns the gospel. Young women, married or single, are you convinced that that is the best way to live? And older women, it is your job to teach them. Are you willing to do that? Finally, then we move on to young men. Now, all of you think that young men have got away with it. They seem to have only one thing given to them, and that is to be self-controlled. I think that's principally because we're really quite simple. But it is an intriguing comment by Paul, because as a young man, I know the big thing I would struggle with most profoundly is to be self-controlled. And the lack of anything else here in this list means that being self-controlled is to cover everything a young man struggles with. Sex, lust, temper, pride, the tongue, greed, power, competitiveness, desire for respect, rampant ambition, peer pressure, addictiveness, entitlement... These are all things, more of some, less of others, different in different young men. But on the whole, these are all things that men seriously struggle with. All of which require incredible self-control to conquer. In fact, I would go so far as to say that most of the issues in the world, most of the wars potentially, nearly all the enormous scandals of church and state, have all been down to the simple fact that a young man has not learned to be self-controlled. Young men... The potential we have within ourselves of utter and total self-destruction is colossal. And we know it. What are you like behind closed doors? What are your internal battles? What are you not battling? What are you like in your heads, in your hearts? What are we like when we're around each other? How are we wishing to be perceived? What are we like with temptation? Young men, we really need to learn how to deploy self-control. Are we really being serious about our battles with sin? Are we really being serious about holding each other truly accountable? Are we really being serious about the way we view other people? Are we really serious about denying ourselves and our desires and taking up our cross and walking with Jesus daily? Are we really serious about that? 
Because each moment where I am not deploying self-control, each moment where I fail in my temptations without battling, is another chink in my armor which will weaken over time. Where I find all too soon that I have no defenses left, and I am only a hair's breadth away from making the most horrendous decisions of my life. Young men of the church, are we learning to be self-controlled? The gospel is a serious business, and God will not be mocked, and his gospel will not be maligned. Is what we say in public church life the life we lead behind closed doors? Are we living with integrity? Are we living with gospel seriousness? Are we living with the aim of emulating the older men who have gone before us in finishing well for the gospel? Maybe there are things you really need to repent of this morning, where self-control and pride and competition has been a real issue. I challenge you not to let these things slide. And for all of us here, for those of us who follow Jesus, you older men, you older women, you younger women, us younger men, are we desiring to live these ways detailed here in Titus 2? Are there things we really need to repent of? Are there attitudes I really need to change in regards to gospel living? Are we convinced that what we read of here is the best way to live as detailed by our creator for the sake of our joy and for the sake of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, this brings us on to our very last point, because we can get to the end of this list and be so overwhelmed by what we're not doing and how we're not living, it can almost be suffocating. And we've not even really been able to have time to look at what it means to be a worker, to be showing good faith, that is, working with integrity, or even what our speech should look like so that no one can put us to shame. This is all a product of this. We do this so that no one can put the gospel to shame. We haven't even been able to look at that, working for the Lord and not for man. We can get to this list and we look at it, and not even privately, we say, well, this is impossible. And that is why this letter is written. Because Titus, with sound doctrine, you are to teach all these parts of the congregation how to live lives of radical godliness, standing on the grace of God. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for for good works. That sounds doctrine. We are under grace. You see, this list doesn't condemn us, it releases us. The gospel of grace trains me to renounce godlessness so that I can live a self-controlled, upright and godly life. How? Because I have now been redeemed from lawlessness. By whom? By Jesus Christ, my Savior, who gave himself for me, that is, on the cross, as my substitute in my place, so that I can now be zealous for every good work. You see, it is because of this gospel of grace and the death of Christ that I am now allowed to live this life. I couldn't do that before. Ephesians 2 reminds me that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I could only live out the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body. I could only be a child of God's wrath. 
You see what's going on here? It isn't that these instructions of Paul to Titus are given to us, the church, as rods for our backs, as things to have to attain to reach perfection. It is a freedom of life I am now allowed to live in thankfulness to Jesus who has made it possible for me to live this way. Christ and the gospel of grace takes us as people wrapped up in death, wrapped up in living in no other way than in lawlessness, and makes us alive in him so that we may now go on and live lives of radical godliness. In other words, don't view this list as condemnatory. View this list as freeing, as inspiring, something I can now aim for. Sin is no longer inevitable, in other words, because of the gospel of grace. I can say no to sin. Falling into temptation is no longer inevitable. Because of the gospel grace, I can say no to temptation. Being self-controlled, loving our husbands and our wives, being pure and upright, working well in the world, living a life that is worthy of respect, holding firm to sound doctrine, keeping our speech, keeping each other accountable, speaking the gospel in love, living lives where my proximity to Jesus Christ is literally bursting out from our faces is possible. And then once we've worked out that living this life is possible, we then see that living this life is utterly desirable. Verse 13, our Savior Jesus Christ has redeemed us from all lawlessness so that we may be purified, so that we may be zealous for good works. I don't just find I can live this, right, this way, I find I desperately want to. In other words, considering where we've come from in Ephesians 2 or where we've come from, where we've been redeemed from here in Titus 2.13, Why would we not want to live this way, full tilt? Why would we not want to adorn the gospel in this manner? Why would I not want to aim for living a life of radical godliness that sets me free as I live in my family, in my church, in my role, in my gender, in my age, in my created being, the way that God intended for me to live, which surely is the best way I can live? But more fundamentally, this is verse 10 of chapter 2, why would I not want to adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour, which has brought salvation to all people? Why would we not want to live as fully as we can this gospel of freedom that shows people and society around us that there is another way to live? That is not wrapped up in self and failure and hopeless cravings, but is wrapped up in the living God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eye-watering stuff. But better still, as we close, it means that under this gospel of grace, as we strive to live these lives of radical godliness, we are going to fail. There will always be sins that assail us, temptations that hunt us down, issues and circumstances that will always take our eyes away from Jesus. But it means that under the gospel of grace, we can come back to the cross. And repent before the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us, remember, and who now intercedes every day for us on behalf of the Father. And we are made right and washed clean and sent on our way, ready for every good work, ready to adorn the gospel. Chalmers Church, you older men, you older women, you younger men and uh, you younger women and us younger men, all of us as workers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's leave here not under condemnation but under freedom. 
And as we do strive falteringly to live these radically godly lives, and in the midst of real, real struggle here, remember what we are living for, verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. In other words, we are living in hope of a future reality of Jesus where we really, truly will know what it is like to live a life of freedom, free of sin, for a whole of eternity. Well, let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we uh, thank you and praise you so, so much for your gospel. Thank you for the sound doctrines of the gospel. Thank you for these important truths that uh, allow us to rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Heavenly Father, what we've read here is sobering and difficult, but it is also glorious. Heavenly Father, God, I pray, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would be um, captured by this, that we would want to live like this because of everything that Jesus Christ has done for us, because of the gospel of grace that has released us and allowed us to live lives of godliness. Heavenly Father, we are also very sorry Very sorry for the way that we do not live like this. Heavenly Father, I pray that as part of our lives of godliness, we would be living constant lives of repentance, where mistakes don't kill us, but where we repent quickly and seriously and sincerely and learn from them and move on in godliness. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, who represents us before you even now. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the wonderful, glorious truth of the gospel. May it set us free this week, we pray in your strong name. Amen.